In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Best-selling author, Dr. Jessica Taylor, has been an outspoken advocate for a trauma-informed model of care. Her latest book, Sexy But Psycho, does an excellent job providing historical context, the pathologizing of women, and proposed solutions. On today's podcast, we welcome Dr. Jessica Taylor for a radically genuine conversation. Welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. We are honored today to have a special guest, Dr. Jessica Taylor, who is a chartered psychologist and Sunday Times bestselling author. She is the director of Victim Focus, a speaker, a thought leader, and researcher in the field whose latest critically acclaimed book, Sexy But Psycho, How the Patriarchy Uses Women's Trauma Against Them, was recently released. Welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for reading the book. It's really exciting to have you on. I've been following your work over the past couple years. Um, one of the things that really stands out is your, your passion and your commitment. It's an unbridled, uncensored approach to to pointing out some of the uh, misogyny and the oppression that exists in both the mental health field and the criminal justice system. From following you on, on social media, um, it, really, it really seems that you've taken a personal and intimate account in, into your work. And when we read your book, you did open up the book talking a lot about your own personal experiences. Can you just tell our audience a little bit about you personally and professionally and what motivated you to write this book? Um, so I, yeah, I grew up in a really poor area um, and I had a pretty just normal sort of average like childhood up to the age of about 11 and then we moved somewhere really dangerous um, and there, and it was sort of like an even worse area. Um and I think everything just went wrong for me. I was a straight A student at school, but I was just surrounded by violence and abuse and drugs and stuff. And, and you know, you, you don't, it's not easy to escape environments like that when you're literally in the middle of them. Um, so, you know, it wasn't just me. There was lots of other girls my age that were being trafficked. They were being given drugs. They were being raped. They were being abused. They, you know, they were being severely beaten up. You know, there was all sorts of stuff going on around me that was just seen as like, normal like just normal everyday behavior um and yeah like for me I I had a really rough sort of like seven or eight years where um I was subjected to a lot of different crimes of everything I can think of really I've witnessed a lot of serious crime I've been subjected to a lot of serious crime like when I was you know much younger um I um got pregnant twice by rape one ended in a miscarriage and one I I had the child um when I was a teenager so I was 16 when I got pregnant um so I had a really difficult start really difficult 
I don't really know exactly how I got out of any of that. Um, it still baffles me to this day. Um, and I wish that I had even an ounce of the strength that I seem to have had when I was a teenager. Um, but yeah, so um, I, I opened the book talking about the fact that um, I'd gone to the police and reported it all and stuff. And after many months of waiting for the trial date, um, the police dropped all the charges and started suggesting that maybe I was actually mentally ill and I was probably about... 19 i think when that happened or something um and i still don't know to this because they weren't derogatory about it like they were they were trying to be almost nice about it so i don't know why i had such a strong reaction to it because i didn't have anybody around me giving me any advice i was on my own there was nobody caring for me or anything but as soon as that came out of those officers mouths i was like absolutely not you don't get you're not going down this route with me um and I'm very, very lucky that I basically ordered them out of my house and, ne you know, never got taken down that route that many, many, many women and girls that have been subjected to crime will eventually get referred into some sort of psychiatric team or a mental health team. Um, but yeah, then sort of, I, I was always really bright and I, I wanted to eventually go to university because I never got a chance because I didn't finish high school. Um, I went back to university when I was 20, I think. Um, I'm now 31. Um, and um, I, I went to university whilst I was working full time and with children as a, you know, uh, so I had, I had two babies and I had um, a job and I studied for my degree in psychology, my first degree was in psychology um in uh, in the evenings while they were asleep and the weekends and like when generally whenever they were asleep I would study um and um yeah and then I, I did really well and then I went and did a doctorate and did my PhD and stuff and I like, did really well and then everything's just blown up from there really I like released the books and they've done really well it's just all a bit wild still trying to like take a moment <laughs> <laughs> congratulations on your success Currently, you are also a director of, of Victim Focus. Can you tell us a little bit about the, the work that you're doing there? Yes. Yeah, so Victim Focus is five years old. It's a company that I yeah, set up. Um, and the reason that I set the company up was so that I could initially, because I was on my own, um, I just wanted to challenge poor practice, misinformation, oppressive practice, victim blaming practice. Um, and, I, and what I mean by that is police, social workers, psychologists like me, mental health practitioners, um, you know, within our health services or our statutory services or, or private companies where, where really they need retraining, they need challenging, they need their policies changing. There's, there's, you know, there's a lot of bad practice out there. Victims are being treated badly, members of the public are being treated badly, but also the staff. There's a lot of vicarious trauma in the workplace that nobody really pays any attention to. A lot of our workforces are very traumatized and nobody, um, you know, nobody is really paying any attention to the fact that when you have a very, very traumatized workforce, the work they're doing won't be good, you know, because like it won't be. They're desensitized, they're exhausted, they're biased, uh, they make bad decisions and, and so on. So we work all over the world with commissioners of all kinds that want to challenge that in their organizations. We write a lot of training. We create a lot of free resources for victims and survivors. So we're, we're a weird sort of hybrid that we, we do research and training and consultancy, but we also have um, areas of our website that are totally free to everybody, like free self-help courses and 
free information, free research, free reports and stuff like that. And we make a lot of free stuff on social media. Um, and yeah, it's, it's really in a quite a large rate of growth at the moment. So I employ 27 people now. So in five years, we've, you know, gone from just me on my own to, to quite a large team that works all over the world. It's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah, that's amazing. So one of the things that is very clear about your book is how women exposure to trauma can present itself in various ways that get misrepresented, misunderstood, and mislabeled in the mental health system. What are some of the, the, the varied reactions or responses to trauma that you believe mental health professionals, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers are misunderstanding and mislabeling? everything um because the point of the process and the pathologization is that anything can be recast as an abnormal response so whether i don't know let's say a woman goes into a police station and says she's been raped but she doesn't cry and that's seen as well why is she not crying is she not upset is this a lie is she making this up is she she got some sort of personality disorder why is she so disconnected but then in in a similar way woman goes into a police station and says she's been raped and she's crying and she's very upset and she can't get her words out and she's sobbing. That's also seen as like, why is she so upset? You know, why is she not coping? This is too much. It's theatric or, you know, whatever it is that they say. So pretty much I've seen everything. I've seen anger, I've, you know, used against women and girls who are, you know, a, a disclosing or reporting abuse. So if they get too angry, that's seen as disordered. If they're too quiet. One of the things that really pricked my interest years ago was attachment so for example you know girls who have been abused or have been trafficked they will often be very suspicious of professionals and adults around them after the trafficking whereas I would see that as totally normal you should allow them to be suspicious and that's a totally natural response after what you've been through a lot of professionals start suggesting that they have attachment disorders and that they require the diagnosis because there's something wrong with the way they form attachments whereas I, I would dis disagree with that so there's that there's um you know things like flashbacks self-harming um physiological responses to trauma you know palpitations feeling sick digestive issues all sorts of stuff that that you know in some ways they get recast into whatever it is that professional wants them to be. If they mm. want it to be mm. psychosis, it's that. If they want it to be borderline personality mm. disorder, it's that. If they want it to be anxiety, it's that. Like there's no, there's no real consistency. I get, I get that. Um, at one point in the book, you, you know, you bring up the fact that you're arguing that psychiatry is almost like a tool for female op oppression. And at one point in the book, you actually state that you were, you were ridiculed, harassed, shamed for bringing up the question why are we labeling and medicating women and girls? Can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I get, I still get it. I'm getting it today <laughs> as I'm recording this. There's currently a load of stuff going on social media, trying to report me to every regulatory body possible and all the normal stuff that happens when you speak out about this, this sort of process of labeling and pathologization as if it's some sort of crackpot conspiracy theory that, you know, that I find that really interesting because, you know, I've had everything. I've had threats. I've had just constant abuse. I've had like massive posts written about me. I've had letters of complaint. I've been taken off pieces of work. You know, I've been warned. There's all sorts of stuff. And I just think the evidence base around psychiatry and psychology is is heavily contested. What? How have we got to a 
place where people just they've taken it so far and so literally that if you even say I don't agree with that you're seen as some sort of like conspiracy nutter like it like it just I just don't understand how that's happened because my understanding for example of let's say schizophrenia is that it's highly contested and it has been for decades borderline personality disorder highly contested has been for decades there are peer-reviewed journals arguing both sides of that the same with you know um psychosis the same with the psychometric assessments like as far as I was concerned there are bodies of evidence that are one side and the other so it interests me that when you're on the critical side of it that's seen as just made up rubbish but if you're if you're on the sort of pro side of it that's seen as scientific rigor I just yeah <laughs> so we're at this place in the field where the the science in itself hasn't really evolved significantly in a century for for the most part and there's a there's a lot of debate and the scientific process is one that should require open debate and constant evaluation. What I'm hearing from you today is in response to trauma, there is an evolutionary adaptive means of being able to self-protect. So young women and girls who've experienced traumatic experiences, we would expect them to respond in a specific way. But the modern system is using the word disorder as if it it is outside the bounds of what would be considered normal. Mm -hmm. Dr. Taylor, we're seeing, we're, extreme, we're seeing extremely high rates of antidepressant use and psychiatric hospitalizations for teenage girls in particular uh, for suicide attempts. A 50% increase from 2019 to 2021. How do you make sense of that? that rise over the past couple of years and where do you see the current culture as far as it, it's shifting in a way that is actually creating more harm for, for young women? It's a really interesting time period that you're talking about there as well, because what you're actually talking about is lockdown and COVID. So like 2019 onwards, if the increase is from there, you have to factor in that we've just had one of the most traumatic uh, group events that has happened in a very very long time um so you know that's another thing i've been keeping an eye on is the whole there's quite a lot of statistics and reports being released at the moment saying you know mental health issues are on the increase and this is on the increase and this is on the increase i think yeah we've just been locked up for two years what did you think was going to happen people won't cope with that it's not natural humans don't connect with each other over facetime like the, it, so you are going to see worsening um emotional well-being psychological well-being it's not gonna go well for anybody so i do find it interesting that there's almost an uncritical narrative around that almost like um you know oh um covid and lockdown has caused more mental illness like how did it do that sorry um are we not saying that are we is it not correct to say that actually that process has traumatized millions of people who are now as you say they're naturally responding to that level of fear that they were that they were put under you know in lots of different ways um i mean it's not normal to have a death count on the tv every day is it you know that's a very traumatic <laughs> thing yeah to put the population through you turn your tv on it's a big red number of how many people died that day um it was like living in hunger games so th that's not that's not normal for people to go through so we will see 
people struggling, but that doesn't mean a true increase, for example, in so-called mental illness or disorder. Suicidality or like actual suicide attempts increasing is really worrying. But my interest would be, why, what is the real reason for that? Because it's not just an increase in illness. It's not an increase in brain chemical imbalances. It's not, you know, what is happening that so many teenage girls are going, I can't do this. I don't want to be here. I'd rather be dead. That, you know, we've got to figure out why that is. Um, and it, you know, in terms of like what this is doing for, you know, especially for like young girls, I do worry that the current pro-diagnosis and sort of identity politics thing that's being pushed towards teenagers, especially teenage girls that like, that they should identify with a mental illness, that it's good for them to label themselves, that it's a, it's a valid thing it further stigmatizes and isolates them. They just don't understand that just yet. You know, there are TikTok trends encouraging teenage girls to identify with mental illnesses and to self-diagnose or to go and seek medication. But we know in reality, once those things are on their file, on their medical records, there's a very high chance they'll get used against them, you know? That's uh, an excellent point. And what I appreciated about your book was from somebody who doesn't work in the field, reading through it, you provided a lot of historical context. And then you also went through all the models of of biological, biopsychosocial, social, and then the trauma-informed model. And I believe you put yourself into the trauma-informed model. For our listening audience, would you mind explaining a little bit about that? And then I want to lead it into a conversation about the use of language. Okay, cool. So for me, uh, okay, so I'll start by saying that the trauma-informed approach is very much a buzzword at the moment. It's getting diluted. So there's a lot of misunderstanding and misrepresentation of what people mean when they say that. So my understanding of that and what my company uses is that Trauma is a natural, normal, valid, rational reaction to things that we're subjected to. So that could be one-off acute events, you know, like your mum dying or, you know, you were sexually assaulted or you, um, I don't know, you were in a car crash. But it also means long-term chronic forms of distress and trauma, you know, that that you live in poverty or you're subjected to racism every day or you know, that you're in an abusive uh, context or relationship that's lasted 12 years that you can't get out of. Or, you know, there are very distressing things that happen to all of us all the time. And um, so the trauma-informed approach would be sort of, instead of positioning those responses as an illness or a disorder or as an abnormality of the brain or of brain chemicals or of the body in some way, that actually what you're seeing is a normal reaction to extreme distress and to Mm -hmm. too much pressure Mm -hmm. on that person so I would argue for example that you know very often what's positioned as being irrational is often rational when you talk to people so you you know they might say well I don't know um that their self-harming behavior is irrational or their eating disorder is irrational behavior it's an irrational response but actually when you get to the root of where it comes from and what it means everything has a purpose everything has every behavior has a meaning and a root you can usually find a rational reason for why that coping mechanism or that trauma response developed because 
you know, in a trauma-informed approach, we would use coping mechanisms and trauma responses instead of using words like symptoms and illnesses and stuff. Yes, and um, that's where I wanted to take it because in the book, you provided that excellent example of one particular client and the way a referral was written. You provided the first example that was written from the context of disorders, where a lot of other uh, clinicians would say, I don't think I can work with this person. This person's going to be too difficult and passing them on to someone else. And then you had a more, um, I'll call it a human approach to writing a referral. Can you share an example of, of how that would be written? It, it's, it's more that trauma-informed model. Am I correct? Yeah, for sure. So um, in the book, the example that you're talking about is the difference between, you know, writing a professional referral for a woman or a man any or a child, anybody really, where you've sort of written it like, um, you know, I'm referring this person to you. They have um, PTSD and also, um, you know, attachment disorder and they're problematic and they disengage and um, they are closed down and, you know, they um, have delusions and they have this and they have, that. and it's all sort of very medical language that, often a professional will just take one look at that and be like, well, they're too complex for me. I can't take this referral. There's nothing I can do for this person. So then on the other hand, the example is that if we talked about that exact same person, but from that trauma-informed human perspective, we might write something like, um, you know, I'm referring this woman to you. She was subjected to, you know, um, I don't know, like um, racist bullying for X amount of years, then was sexually abused for X amount of years. She currently doesn't feel able to talk about it. Um, she doesn't trust professionals um, and mm-hmm. she's likely to find your service overwhelming. Um, you know, do not push her for a disclosure because she's likely to back off. You need to work with her on her terms. Like there are there are ways of describing those things that do not require medical language. And this is where I think we're falling short in the psychological community for psychologists. We're, we have a training clinic here. We're training next generations of, of clinical psychologists. And we're seeing exactly what you're, you're talking about, that we've lost a, an understanding and depth of the individual. And these lens are creating this, this, uh, this heuristic in which to see people, which is completely reaped with bias, and it alters the way they then interact with the person. I think many people in the field and the listening audience in general don't understand how these disorders were actually created and assume that there is scientific validity and research support around their development. You do an excellent job in this book of creating historical context around the field and how these disorders were developed. Can you share with our listening audience a little bit about the development of these disorders and the DSM process in general? I think you're absolutely right in that I think the perspective is that it was a scientific process where these things were discovered and then they were proven and so on. Like, you know, that in a similar way, I think people talk about these disorders like we would talk about diabetes or COPD or cancer, you know, something that is observable, something that's testable and measurable and that can be reliably seen in many different people around the world. Um, And that's very much how these have been positioned. But the reality is very different from that. And that's that, you know, a lot of these 
so-called disorders they come from hatred of marginalized groups you know like schizophrenia comes from the um comes from racism and from slavery that this belief that um you know like uh, schizophrenia was originally called black disorder or black disease you know that history needs to be talked about we can't just pretend that that's not the root of that disorder we can't just go oh we don't talk about that anymore like that's not acceptable. That is the root of that disorder. That's also why still to this day in many countries in the world, you're much more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia if you're black, right? There's a reason that that's happening. There's also a reason why for a long period of time, as part of schizophrenia, black activists could be diagnosed with protest disorder because if they got involved in civil mm. protest or protest around their own human rights, they could be sectioned and diagnosed with protest psychosis. Like what? there is no... Even psychologists and psychiatrists that are going through their doctoral training are not being taught the real history of where these things come from. Borderline personality disorder comes from the belief that women are, and females in, in like general are naturally insane, that they're inferior, that their brains have less capacity um, and less capability, and that they were hysterical because they're uterus was detaching and floating around the body and battering the brain and making them crazy you know those those underpinning beliefs haven't really gone anywhere borderline personality disorder in its um in, in its so-called criteria or symptomology is very very similar to the dsm2's um characterization of hysteria um and hence why it's so heavily connected to histrionic personality disorder um and the misogyny and sexism around that hasn't gone anywhere. You're still seven times more likely to be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. If you're female, you're actually much more likely to be diagnosed with it. If you're bisexual female, which is really interesting because it plays on that sort of like, you're not you're like, you're not behaving like a proper woman. You're not behaving like a proper girl. If you're bisexual, like you can't have sex with just both sexes and that'd be okay. Um, and so you know, when you look back down the history of these so-called disorders, there is a very rich tapestry of the original levels of thinking that we've now decided that we're just not going to talk about. You know, like, for example, what used to be called um, nervous disorder or nervous disposition is now known as anxiety disorder. But there were books written saying that um, you should try and marry women with nervous disposition or nervous disorder because they were much better wives. They were... Um, you know, they were more submissive and they were polite and they did what they were told because they had nervous disposition. So like, are we just going to pretend none of that happened? Mm -hmm. So, so you bring up this idea, like, well, we're pretending none of it happened in the educational system. There we're not, you know, we always talk about critical thought and teaching critical thought, like rhetoric and communication, and then looking at words and, and doing it in, in the book. Um, we learned what gaslighting was with my students this year. And you use that quite a bit. And so with this idea of gaslighting, so anybody that questions what's, what's normal, you know, is crazy. Like anything that you bring up that would be contradictory to the norm is crazy. Do you believe that there is a concerted effort? Um, I guess you would say maybe in a pharmaceutical industry or whatnot to, to gaslight the general public um, and practitioners and even psychiatrists to keep them on a narrative so that... They never actually question anything? That's such an interesting question because I'm not 100% sure that it's a um, 
considered planned group effort I actually wonder if there's a lot of gaslighting going on I'm not sure that it's as planned and as considered as we as it might look I think it's just a lot of people doing it however I have been subjected to that form of gaslighting by other professionals and academics where if I speak out and these are very intelligent people they deliberately start positioning me as mentally ill and then whatever I say doesn't matter because then I'm discredited. Now that would suggest that that's deliberate and that they know that's what they're doing. I also watch it happen deliberately in the criminal justice system. Barristers, mm-hmm. lawyers, solicitors, they know that if they can position the victim or the key witnesses as mentally ill and then gaslight them into being like, well, you know, you might not remember or like, well, you know, that might be what you think happened. That would suggest right. that that was deliberate. They know what they're doing, surely. May I ask a question uh, before we move forward, Raj? Regarding the DSM, I think we've, over the, at least as I've grown more educated about it, uh, my understanding it was written by predominantly white males. And what we're experiencing now is that there's a certain bias when it comes to these disorders. So now as we're kind of progressing in our understanding and a trauma-informed model, is there anyone out there that's creating a new manual that removes these labels and approaches things differently so that psychologists can move away from the DSM towards something else? Is there anything else that's out there? Are you guys aware of anything? There's, you know, for example, I know that like Lucy Johnston um, and, and Mary Boyle and a couple of others created the power threat meaning framework, um, but it's, it's, it doesn't really create another manual. It, it sort of provides a complete alternative way of thinking about somebody's behaviours and like a different way of like engaging in formulation. Interestingly, I've been looking at building something that almost is like the antithesis to the DSM. Like I would really love something that look instead of calling them disorders i would really love to create something that looked at every single trauma response or coping mechanism and then actually explained what that means and where that could come from and and how you understand that in your own mind or in your own body because i think there's some mileage in giving people an alternative way of understanding their own brain and body you know if you google like for example why am I having panic attacks? You're going to be taken to a medical explanation of uh, some sort of disorder. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there's no way yep. around it. So we really should be providing an alternative. Agree. Yeah, I do know that there are some research groups out there who are thinking about emotional conditions as various dimensions of adaptation to stressful conditions, which I think is exactly what you're referring to when you're talking about a, a trauma-informed model. Back to Kelly's question, um, when we talk about it being kind of a, a concerted effort or a joined effort, we have to look back at the, the pharmaceutical industry and the role that they play in being able to financially support academics and the development of textbooks. This categorical model of emotional disorders is trying to medicalize these conditions because you can't really get a drug approved for a setback in life. You can't get a drug approved for a response to a traumatic event. You can get a drug approved if it is a identified medical disorder. And that's the brainwashing that exists in Western society. That when somebody experiences emotional distress, 
then they're viewing it now through that lens as if there is something broken within me. And the consequences of viewing that there's, there's something broken with a normal response and reaction is self-judgment. You develop a new relationship to that experience, almost like a fear of that feeling. It leads to emotional discontrol, loss of confidence, and even a disconnect from what is real. You no longer trust your experience. That's the gaslighting, in my opinion, that exists systemically in the system. Yeah, I, I do agree with everything you've just said. I just sometimes think that pharmaceutical companies actually don't put as much thought or care into this as we think they do. And what I mean by that is that it's so profit driven. I really don't think they care about whether they're gaslighting. I don't think they're thinking about it that much. I think all they're thinking is money, like i.e. if this can be a disorder, we can create a product, then we can sell the product. Like I don't think that they care necessarily about the emotional or psychological process that, that to get there. I mean, they might do. I might be being very naive here. But, you know, look at what happened around antidepressants where um, that was purely uh, pharmaceutical companies looking at some of those trials with rodents and going, do you know what, though, we could market it that serotonin can yeah. cure, you know, melancholia and we could we could say it cures depression in people. And then they put that out. And you know what? They didn't have to really do that much of a job. There wasn't exactly like a huge brainwashing effort. People took that because they're desperate for release from being low and struggling and not knowing a way out in their lives. Nobody's providing an alternative. So it worked for them. And I think that over time, you know, pharmaceutical companies are just getting better and better at reframing things. Like look at... Um, I'm trying to think what uh, Prozac uh, relabeling Seraphim for PMDD, for so-called PMDD, right? All they did was pull the Prozac license off the market. Then they repackaged it as Seraphim. They put some little flowers on the box because women love flowers. Mm -hmm. And then like, and then they like put it <laughs> out into, you know, the world and was like, look, we've made a treatment for PMDD. And it's, di it's definitely different from Prozac. It's exactly the same product. Yeah. Your, um, your words in the book here, people believe that their mental health issues come down to a, quote, freak chemical imbalance in their brain that no one can cure or explain. And obviously, if you've listened to our podcast, we completely agree. But can you just beat the shit out of that theory for us right now and explain <laughs> to people that, you know... <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's actually a lot easier than it looks in that um, I think it's been made to look like that theory is so robust, but actually it's one of the easiest ones to pull apart in like 30 seconds. And the way that I generally do it is to say, if there is a chemical imbalance in the brain, why can't we test for it? Why do we not have any tests? Bingo, Go into your right. doctor. Yeah. So like, as we said earlier, medicine has come forward leaps and bounds in a hundred years, right? But this, where's this? Where's the basic test for depression? Doesn't exist. There's no blood test. There's no water samples. There's no, you know, MRI scans. There's no proof any of this exists. You go into your doctor and tell them that you're not feeling great and you're low and everything's going wrong and you feel like you want to die. And then they say, oh, you know what that is? It's a brain chemical imbalance. Is it? I, how does how do they know that did they test it like but also there are no ranges of normal even the american psychiatric association 
released a statement saying that there are no ranges of normal or abnormal of these neurotransmitters because we don't know them. We don't know what the low would be. We don't know what high would be. And therefore, we don't know what normal is. So you wouldn't know there was an imbalance anyway. There's no way of of actually testing any of this. We don't even have studies that can reliably test neurotransmitters, especially serotonin that is made in every organ in the body. The majority of it is not even residing in the brain. Like it's just, it's total rubbish. It's so easy to pick apart. And then what I find fascinating is that when you pick it apart, people are sort of like really taken aback by it. And you think it's, it's obvious, isn't it? Like if I went into the doctor and said, I think I have high blood pressure and the doctor just looked at me and went, yeah, I think you do actually. Here's some pills. <laughs> that wouldn't that wouldn't be okay. They would say, "Well, we need to test. We can't just assume that you have high blood pressure because if we medicate you, you're going to get very ill." Um, but that doesn't exist. And in the same way, like I can't go into the doctor and go, "I'm. I think I'm diabetic. I've read on the internet that I'm diabetic, so I think I'm diabetic." And then the doctor go, "You're right. Here's an insulin pen, and here's some medication. Mm. You're going to need it." you know, there would be tests. I would have to go through tests and then they would have to check whether my glucose levels were normal, whether my insulin levels were okay, whether there were any other things that were causing it. There is no scientific rigor going on in this brain chemical imbalance bullshit. There is none. Mm-hmm. Well said. Um, I'd like to transition to another topic. Uh, we recently had a conversation about the sudden rise of teenage girls with uh, gender dysphoria. I'd like to see what your thoughts are on this. What do you attribute it to? And then more importantly, how should it be approached? I spoke about this in the book, albeit briefly, but I I felt like I couldn't write Sexy But Psycho without talking about the um, rise of gender dysphoria in teenage girls. Not that it isn't happening in teenage boys, but we know that, especially in the UK, the stats are much higher in teenage girls. But Mm -hmm. from a from somebody like me like my perspective sort of being anti-pathology and also being feminist my my concern around it is that I think it's totally normal for teenage girls not to want to be a teenage girl Uh, and so I don't think that's a disorder I don't think that's gender dysphoria I don't think that it's a psychiatric disorder at all but I would still be interested in why that was happening so you know when I worked in rape centers and counseling It was very normal for teenage girls to come to us and say, I hate my body. I wish I didn't have breasts. I want surgery. I want to be a boy. It must be easier being a boy. You know, some of those girls would start dressing differently. Uh, They would cut their hair off. They would tell us, they would even self-harm. So they'd cut their breasts or they'd cut the inside of their legs or they'd cut their genitals and like that. I know that sounds like a lot of distress, but our counsellors and therapists were, that was a common occurrence. That wasn't abnormal for us. And so you know, you need to look at why, what, what is happening in that child's life that means that they want to escape their own body. You know, something has happened. Something is wrong there. Like that, mm-hmm. that's, they are obviously very distressed, but let's talk more broadly. So in society, teenage girls are treated like shit. They are seen as sex objects. They're seen as stupid airheads. They have no value to society they are constantly criticized because they're in this weird position between a child and a woman. And obviously, mm-hmm. you know, society like 
sexualizes the teenage body that's why so many women try to look like they're younger and younger they're so, they're almost wanting to look pubescent like look at what we're doing in society to teenage girls we ruin them we are harming them on the day-to-day basis it makes sense that those teenage girls think do you know what i don't want this i don't want to look like this i don't want to conform i don't want to do this anymore and they have been essentially presented with an escape hatch like do you know what you could be trans you could be non-binary you could present however you want and you could be safer that way fuck it why wouldn't you take that why wouldn't you take mm-hmm, that option right. I d- like i don't think that that i just don't think that that's a disorder at all mm-hmm. yeah i think i think reading your book really did open my eyes as i mean as a high school teacher i see that all the time and it really is it created an empathy now much more than i've ever had with adolescent girls and what they go through um, and, you know, I appreciate it. I want to bring it, I want to actually in, in, in education here, we're, um, in service on ACEs and you talk about adverse childhood experiences in your book. And so this was introduced to me through an in-service about maybe I'd say 10 years ago or so. And then every year or every other year we get training on it. But during every in-service, I, I just, I smell bullshit. I mean, I see a troubling pattern that I'm supposed to keep quiet about at the public school level. And it's not with the families, it's with the ACEs training. It's with how people are being trained in this, um, the way information is being misrepresented when disseminated to teachers and administration. Am I wrong in thinking that, you know, the, the training, the ACEs trend is, is kind of being misused? No, I think that's bang on the money. I think it's totally misused. I think it's being deliberately misused. It's a really nice, neat way of numerically scoring human trauma. Um, it, it's, I mean, and when I meet, when I say that, I don't mean that in a positive way. It, it just works for governments. It works for authorities to give you a four or a exactly. six or a two, you know. But But like you say, a lot of people who are critical thinkers do struggle with the ACEs stuff because, for example, your ACEs score is out of 10. It has to have happened to you in childhood. And it only, it's only it's only made up of 10 possible traumas. Like, that makes no sense. Um, yeah. You know, there's just 10. Uh, if it falls outside of that, you've got a zero. So I, I always say to professionals when I'm teaching them, if you're, let's say, a child who's... Um, country is torn by political conflict and then you have to escape and then you're a refugee and then you're displaced several times and then you get into a country where you can't speak that language and then you're bullied at school technically your ACE score is zero that's jeez um (laughs) which I just think really if you can pull a so-called psychometric or a so-called assessment framework apart in like 10 seconds it's probably not that good but also, you know, there's the thing around scoring because I love psychometrics. Like it's one of my favorite things to like mess around with and talk about. Mm-hmm. How is, how do you get a point, a score of one for your parents divorcing, but you also get a, a score of one if you've been sexually abused throughout childhood? And then also there are things in the ACEs questionnaire that make absolutely no sense. Like for example, it's only classed as sexual abuse if the perpetrator was more than five years older than you, but lots of children are sexually abused by siblings or by children of the same age. That's very common. So um, on the ACEs questionnaire, that doesn't count at all as a, as a sexual Mm -hmm. assault, but this is because it's, it's totally misused. It is never and never was created 
by the original authors to be used on trauma. It was never supposed to be used like that. It was used for epidemiological health research on obesity and drug use and smoking and ad and adverse reactions, like, you know, behaviours that cause illnesses in the general population. And also it was never tested on children. It was always tested on adults retrospectively. Like, it, it it's just been totally... I just sometimes feel like people grabbed hold of it and just ran off with it. And I feel like if yeah. I was the authors of that research, I would be mortified. We see this way too often. A little bit of information can be really dangerous mm -hmm. because although maybe the intentions of it are, are positive, it's misapplication actually becomes harmful. Before we let you go today, I have to get your opinion on the Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial. I, I think it's ironic your book becomes is released and then um, thrust into the national, international spotlight is this trial, which pretty much confirms a lot about what you write about in this book. Um, just want to get your, your opinions on, on what is happening in that trial and what you've been observing. I think for me, I started to become interested in it when um, Depp's side started to suggest that Amber had histrionic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, and started using that to frame her as non-credible, especially because that is a day-to-day -day occurrence in these types of trials and in family court and in criminal court. So it, for me, was the most predictable thing that team could have done. However the international response to that was that it was a scientific assessment of her and that it was rigorous and that it was proven and that it was valid. And that again shows how little people understand about that process. You know, when you consider that Amber got those diagnoses after meeting with a professional that Depside hired and paid for, and then she met with her twice and then she turned up to court and was like, yeah, she's crazy <laughs> um like that does that not seem to anybody like that might be slightly biased um and probably not very scientific um and it's amazing that actually a lot of people don't they don't think that was unsci unscientific and they don't think it was biased they think that was a professional process to go through and that she got an, a legitimate diagnosis but i think that in general this trial this this hearing um about defamation um, I don't think Depp cares if he wins or loses. I think that he promised her global humiliation, and that's what he's given her. I think it's. I think he. he I think the purpose of this is public um, disclosure. I think it's a game. I think it's theatrical, and I think it's deliberately theatrical. And um, I think that it's unethical. It shouldn't be televised. I don't think there's been any safeguards or ethics put around Amber's disclosures. The fact that she disclosed several times last week very serious sexual assaults um but even if it was even if it was him disclosing serious sexual assaults why is this being televised as some sort of tv show why why right. is this entertainment i don't like this is there are so many things about this hearing that are unethical and unprofessional on every single side possible that we should basically use this as a case study of what we should never, ever, ever do again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I know you're on a, a time crunch here, so I want to be able to close out this episode with some recommendations on your part. First of all, fr from my end, I believe it's a, it's a must read for um, our university programs and our training programs. If we are going to challenge the prevailing attitudes and beliefs and how to approach the treatment of mental health conditions 
uh, in the Western world. We have to have critical evaluation and debate. And in this book, they are reasonable arguments, common sense approaches. Backed by science. Backed by solid research and uh, an evaluation of of history and how how it's evolved. So we need to bring critical thinking back in to our education system. Um, I'm concerned about the next generation of therapists who are going to be who are thrust into these positions. Dr. Taylor, um, give us some recommendations here. You know what is next in our field, and then also how can our listening audience and practitioners here in the United States follow you um, and be able to purchase your book? Okay, what's next? I think what has to come next is an overhaul of the medical curriculum in medicine, psychology, and psychiatry, and any any form of frontline services, so social work, policing, mental health, everything. Like We need to go back to basics. Uh, the training needs to start all over again and be more humanistic. And then one of the things that I think needs to happen, and I'm working on at the moment, is creating an independent advocate service that will be totally free where if you've been diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder and you want that taken off or you don't think that's accurate you should be able to go and get an advocate to help you you shouldn't be left to fight that on your own with that on your records because every time you try and fight your own diagnosis you are likely to be seen as even more mentally ill than before because you're refusing your diagnosis or you're in denial or whatever so you Mm. need a professional advocate so i want to create a system um, as far and wide as I can that you you know that you can take an advocate with you to meetings and that somebody can be that person that challenges the evidence like oh why have you diagnosed this person with this after 40 minutes on the phone you know like this is unscientific mm-hmm. where, where is your proof sort of thing um, so there's loads of things and uh, lots of resources that we're going to be releasing this summer anyway that's all totally free um, and in terms of following us and getting hold of that stuff um, you can find me. I'm usually under at Dr. Jess Taylor on every platform, I think, now. So, like, you can, like, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, um, Twitter, sort of every, pretty much everywhere. You'll be sick of seeing me. Um, and, <laughs> um, and um, you know, we have a website, victimfocus.org.uk, where you can get loads of free resources and you can do a free self-help course that, like, tens of thousands of people have already taken. You can take it. It's anonymous. We don't ask for any details or anything. That's if you've ever been subjected to any form of sexual violence and you want to process it in your own time. Um, and we also do loads of free webinars and training where you can just jump on. Like, you just sign up and you can come on and learn loads of stuff and get to know lots of other people. Uh, and we do those every month. Excellent. Dr. Taylor, we thank you so much. Yeah, thank Incredible you. conversation. Go out and buy the book. It is titled Sexy But Psycho, How the Patriarchy Uses Women Trauma Against Them. Uh, recently released. You can get it at Amazon. That's where we've got it. Um, we're going to make it mandatory reading here in our residency program. Continue with the great work that you're doing. We really admire your, your voice. Um, the book is amazing. Best of luck to you. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, 
please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.